Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, believe it or not, he's the good guy. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Mm, That tagline sounds like it's going to be some sort of movie about an anti-hero. I'm going to say, is that from the movie Hancock? No, 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 no. It's from Hellboy 2. Oh, yeah, I was in the right sort of area. Yeah, yeah, same yeah. year. Because with H, both two thousand and eight. So I was in the the correct neighbourhood, the correct time period of, you know, judging from a hundred and something years of cinema. I think getting it within a couple of months is all right. Mm, yeah, I think you're reaching it. You got the wrong film. Come on, let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, get over ourselves. What's been going on this weekend? Uh, I believe um, The Simpsons is, is refusing to die. It's going for two more seasons, and uh, that mm-hmm. news kind of filtered through in the last couple of days. Does anyone care at this point? I think people do in the sense that it's an iconic show and even if it's not as beloved as it was during its kind of its best period, you know, which is is debatable when when that was, but generally agreed to be in the first decade. Um, The fact that it's now, I think, the longest running ever scripted show in American history and uh, that may be even including soap operas, which usually hold that distinction. The fact that it's getting to 600 episodes is quite... You know, it's an achievement. It's it's incredible to think that a show that started as kind of badly animated, not especially funny shorts on the Tracy Ullman show has lasted for nearly three decades and now has theme parks designed around it on both coasts of the Ameri- of the American continent. Uh, and, you know, it's still reasonably funny, you know. I mean, if you can compare it to shows that have come up in the same time period that ripped it off like family guy like family guy never exactly hit the same heights that the simpsons did but its lows have been considerably worse mm. yeah is family guy still going it is surprisingly enough oh, uh, and i think it gets worse ratings than the simpsons so i feel as if matt Groening is very slowly winning that battle <laughs> against seth MacFarlane, uh even though seth MacFarlane's show has produced more spin-offs Mm, mm, yeah, fair. You have been trying out a new streaming service uh, this weekend, and just to clear up any kind of accusations of impropriety, um, we're not sponsored by these people, but uh, it's, I hear it's a good service. Yes, it's uh, Filmstruck, which is the new streaming service from TCM and the Criterion Collection, which people have known about for a while. I think it was announced about six months that they were doing this joint project, and uh, I've been kind of trying it out and uh, it's been really great, certainly from my perspective as someone who loves kind of classic and world cinema and everything, the, the opportunity to be able to stream the Criterion Collection, not all of it obviously, but a huge amount of it and all of these obscure older movies that are sometimes harder to come by uh, is really great. And it also has movies as opposed to, you know, when you look at something like Netflix, which everyone knows at this point has lost about half of its movie library in the last five years as it moves towards original street uh, original content Mm -hmm. it's kind of nice novel to have something that's basically saying you know here's thousands of really interesting movies for you to check out Mm. do we know if it's available outside of the u.s not currently i think there are they are hoping to expand it but uh, this is kind of the problem with all these streaming services it's very hard to sort out the rights from individual countries Mm. uh, unless you do like the whole movie approach of only having a very small number of movies at any one time Mm. i was wondering if um kind of we've kind of touched on this in the past we talk about streaming services in the future and where it's going do you think that you know in five years time or or kind of uh moving forward beyond where we are now things like rights and territories will start to kind of be sold as in kind of clumps or, or kind of region free, as it were. I think that is maybe something that will be done for future movies that are due to come out. They'll have to look into the laws. I think it would take a very long time to untangle the rights issue surrounding movies that are existing already, mm-hmm. which is would be the even more frustrating thing 
with uh, when you're looking at kind of catalog titles or whatever or movies that maybe didn't get a blu-ray or a dvd release or harder to find and have become rare mm. which are the ones that tend to fall through the cracks with streaming with like things like like say like netflix who even a few years ago had like a huge-ish selection of like uh, german expressionist movies and stuff on there which have all gone now and mm. some of those uh are actually on filmstruck which is very nice but it's it's very much the situation where you think these films aren't easy to get hold of they're not available everywhere it would be nice to actually have some place where you can actually watch them reasonably easily and in a lot of cases even if the film's been in the public domain for a really long time that's just not the case mm, yeah i think kind of as much as i'd love to see everything um available all the time and easily like you know if you think about how spoiled we are uh, even in the era of like vhs of having a movie you could watch whenever you wanted rather than having to wait for it to tour around at the cinema and see it we've you know there's never been a better time to to be into films and have things available but i can just foresee you know in the future everyone has got like 800 different subscriptions to yeah. a varying degree of like ridiculous services which is kind of frustrating and it's it just seems like not a week goes by without another streaming service popping up mm. Yeah, kind of the same with the whole peak TV thing where it really does seem as if every year or every every few months there's a new great TV show that has popped up on a channel that no one's ever heard of. Mm. And it's kind of like, I, I don't even know how I'm meant to watch that. I'm not even, I don't even know how I'm meant to watch Please Like Me. But mm. everyone says it's great, but uh, I don't know how to watch it. Yeah, yeah, very frustrating. It used to be so much simpler with four channels, you know what I mean? Yeah, everything was a little worse, but at least everyone could watch it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, and you have to watch it at the same time, and it was crap. But you know, at least we knew what was what. You know? And if you didn't watch it, everyone would make fun of you the next day. Yes, yes, that would actually you be a genuine, genuine conversation. Did you see this last night? Uh, did no, you I've see sliders? Watched... Yeah, did you see sliders? Did you see uh, uh, what was it called? What was the thing with Carl Chandler in with a cat in the newspaper? Oh, early edition. Early edition, yeah, that was good, wasn't it? Um, it wasn't as good as sliders or bone kickers. Bone bone kickers. I'm very fond of the trend in the B in the that the BBC had for a long time of what can we put on at six forty five on a weekday that isn't Star Trek? Mm. The Adventures of Lewis and Clark. Yeah, Adventures of Lewis and Clark, early edition, seven days. You know, all of this kind of like very very kind of strained budget sci-fi stuff that they can kind of put on and i watched it all mm. uh, the only good one was probably Farscape. yeah uh, everything else was uh was not so great but i watched it just because it was sci-fi um what were the name of those two explorers who, who went across america was they lewis and clark they were lewis and clark yeah i've only just got that joke <laughs> like seriously i'm not joking the it's adventures right. of lewis and clark it's weird that you mentioned Lewis and Clark because I've been listening to this is a complete tangent. I've been listening to the novel The Secret History of Twin Peaks that mm. Mark Frost has written to kind of bridge the original Twin Peaks and uh and the, the the revived series that is coming out next year. And there's a very long digression in that about Meriwether Lewis. And it's all about it's actually based in real history that he was he died under mysterious circumstances and people think that he was murdered and it's very nicely woven in that they say okay maybe he went into the black lodge and went crazy at one point uh, and it's it's very interesting to see that worked in and when i started listening to that i thought oh it'd be great you know i get to hear carl mclaughlin kind of talk and get to visit agent cooper again and and all these cast of characters and instead it's like oh no here's some real history for you to learn i feel both delighted and cheated at the same time we're going to talk about politics this week ed aren't we because there is something rather large looming on the horizon yes the end of this 16 17 month long nightmare <laughs> known as the 2016 American election. Mm, I have not known anything like this, Ed. It has been um, quite something, hasn't it? And it kind of, at one point, uh, a kind of a flaming clown car crash, um, <laughs> but then also just deeply horrifying on every level because we are teetering on the brink. 
of you know possibly you know, sliding into an abyss of awfulness yeah it's been interesting to observe living in america but not being able to vote because mm. on the one level i'm deeply invested in it and very horrified about what it could possibly portend for the future of the world if hillary wants no no <laughs> i i am definitely with her of those two options um but you know it's like it's very strange to observe that but also know that i can't have anything any effect on it because i can't vote obviously uh but also knowing that that vote uh that the eventual result will have a very direct impact on my life which is different to like in 2000 and 2004 and 2008 really like living over in the uk and just kind of watching it from a distance where mm. you kind of think okay yeah this uh would affect me in a very abstract way however this result goes whereas when you're here and you're seeing like all the trump bumper stickers and things then uh, it feels a lot closer and more real and you have to fight yourself uh, fight the urge not to just instantly judge people who say they're voting trump for and think they're kind of people who are beyond redemption i mean some of them are obviously but like you can't just assume that everyone who wants to vote for him is deeply evil and twisted mm, yeah maybe just misguided yeah um, misguided and twisted it's been weird we had a, a brief discussion before we started recording this that given everything that's happening this year and just how much it's dominated the the kind of discussion and, and the cultural landscape um, you found it quite hard to watch certain films and, and there's been a lot of films you've seen that you view differently through the prism of this election. Yeah, I mean, there's some that I just... That's things like Elia Kazan's A Face in the Crowd, which is a movie starring Andy Griffiths, a great movie starring Andy Griffiths about a guy who becomes a popular a, a popular star celebrity through his radio uh, his radio show and eventually moves into politics and becomes this kind of populist demagogue who uh is only undone at the last moment because someone leaves his mics on and he insults people <laughs> um, uh which is something that a a kind of um in a normal year you wouldn't really kind of think that much about it even though actually the last two presidential uh elections have been greatly affected by people recording the uh candidates in a kind of a clan in a, a candid moment mm. um but like that tracks so closely onto some of the things surrounding the trump campaign uh that it's kind of eerie but then there are things like even more uh kind of abstract like uh, i'm catching up on black mirror at the moment which is a slow process because when you watch one episode you kind of want to not ever watch another one again because <laughs> it just leaves you feeling so kind of soul broken and everything uh but um, I re I watched recently an episode called The Waldo Moment, which is a episode that a lot of people think is pretty bad and it's not great. But the plot of that is about a cartoon character who's kind of like got this TV show and he's known for being outrageous. And then to gin up ratings, the people behind the cartoon character decide to make him enter into an MP, into like a by election to run for office as an outsider who says outrageous things that you know people don't say and calling out all sides on their political hypocrisy and you just kind of like all the time that i was watching it all i could think is you know this is even closer than the pig fucking to capturing a a reality of uh, of political life uh, since the episode aired uh, and obviously when charlie brooker or whoever wrote that episode that wasn't their intention but it's it's you kind of can't help but watch a story like that and find parallels in this kind of in, in a situation certainly for me as someone who's just obsessed with following politics uh it's hard not to kind of find weird resonances yeah yeah and it's it's kind of funny to see well not kind of funny it's it's troubling to see but all of kind of the characters that trump has inspired throughout his life mm. seemingly coming back to haunt us so we've got kind of alternate 1985 biff tannen Mm -hmm. uh, Gremlins to Daniel Clamp, although he actually turns out to be all right. But you know, uh, in terms of someone who's uh, brought tumbling down by his hubris and his kind of giant ego, uh, he was definitely an inspiration. Um, who else can you think of? I can't think of any that are kind of directly inspired by him, but there is definitely a whole subsection of American 
kind of fiction where the villain will be kind of a, a rampant industrialist. And again, in terms of watching a movie that maybe didn't have the was net maybe not intended to be kind of resonant in the year 2016 was the remake of magnificent seven which i went to watch today uh, and which is uh, i think actually a really good really interesting movie but there's something strange to watching it and seeing a story about a kind of ragtag group of ethnically diverse fighters banding together to defeat a businessman who's obsessed with building things and who talks about how he feels inferior to kind of bigger more established rich people and it really did like watching that i found it very hard not to just kind of keep drawing all of these parallels and the fact that the film kind of resolves with the black leader of the aforementioned magnificent seven handing off um kind of the protection of this town to a woman uh, it's very hard not to watch that and kind of think there's this this may not have been intended as kind of a, a film on America's choice in 2016, but that's kind of how it plays. Mm. Yeah. And it is, it is that all encompassing, isn't it? This whole kind of juggernaut that's, that's kind of steamrolled uh, the last 18 months that even stuff like the Magnificent Seven, which you, there's no way on earth because that's that remake was knocking around for a long time. Uh, there's no way on earth that, that was kind of deliberately intended and yet here we are talking about it and even if someone had thought to write that idea the idea of it kind of getting through the pipeline between june of 2015 and being in cinemas by the september and being this kind of big elaborate action western seems very unlikely mm, yeah do you think that post this election um, given that we've flirted very close to having... I mean, I'm assuming that Hillary Clinton will win the election, and I am by no means certain in saying that, and I'll probably join everyone else in the world uh, crossing our fingers that mm. uh, this happens, but we are flirting very close with kind of a, a precedent, really, aren't we, of having you know, the first true maniac elected <laughs> as uh, leader of the free world. Do you think that should that happen, we will enter a phase of culture reflecting uh, how insane this whole affair has been, um, even if it doesn't happen? Because um, we talked briefly before we went on about how during certain periods of time in history, uh, it, it seems kind of more acceptable to make political films or there seems to be uh, more of a kind of a splurge of them for particular reasons. Do you think that in the wake of the madness and the media scrutiny that this election has been under, that we will suddenly get uh, a raft of films um, or kind of culture that, that, that talks about it? Because, I mean, if you look at kind of the 90s politics, we got things like Bullworth and Primary Colours, which were hugely influenced by, you know, the Clinton and Bush elections. Yeah, or even like something like The West Wing, mm. which was obviously inspired as a very idealised version of the Clinton years. The idea of like, okay, what if the Clinton years were still marred by scandal because obviously the, the president in that is hiding the fact he has MS, but it's a more benign scandal than getting blowjobs in the kind of the antechamber of the Oval Office, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and it definitely feels like... Um, if Trump were to win or even if he doesn't win there's going to be a raft of culture about it but I feel like if he won there'd be more maybe more feature films or made about it kind of trying to deal with it whereas if he loses there's just going to be a million books written about this election <laughs> um, like every journalist who has been involved every person on the trump campaign who hasn't who can wriggle out of their nda is going to read a tell-all book about all of this stuff uh and it's just, there's going to be a thriving cottage industry in trying to explain what the hell just happened mm, yeah and we talk about the phases of, of of history where kind of political films were kind of you know going through kind of spikes as it were what are we kind of talking about um i think one of the kind of early ones that I can think of is the Red Scare. That would be a, mm. like a good example, especially getting things that weren't particularly um, 
well, I guess explicit about what he was talking about. You got a lot of science fiction dealing with like the other and be people being uh, kind of brainwashed or taken over. Things like invasion of the body snatchers, or um, you know, it came from another world and it corrupted our youth. All those things. Um, they they were reflections of, of the communist scare going on in fifties America, which is something that some of you may not have heard about. But it was called uh, World War Two. No, it wasn't. It was called what was it? Uh, just the Red Scare, I guess. Yeah, the, the just kind of the Red Scare is the general term. Yeah, or well, you have something like the Manchurian Candidate, mm -hmm. which is more directly about it in that it's about someone running for office who's been brainwashed in order to be kind of a sleeper agent, but it still is moving more into the realms of kind of the science fiction in the brainwashing as far as i'm aware isn't quite that advanced that you could really do that to someone mm -hmm. um or something like the parallax view later on kind of does a similar thing or the ipcrest file there's a big obsession with the idea of um the cold war as a place where you couldn't fight directly so you had to just kind of engage in psychological warfare so there's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff about people being brainwashed people being tricked or just the kind of w waging this clandestine war for hearts and minds um but yeah like uh, or and then and there's a whole kind of subsection of this if you look at something like the twilight zone which on television and things like the monsters of on maple street uh where they had just an entire uh, episode dedicated to the the Red Scare and the idea of McCarthyism as uh, as a deadly plague of you know on the American kind of body politic and things like that, uh, where science fiction because you couldn't in kind of I don't know Eisenhower America or or the kind of the more conformist era you couldn't directly say what things were about so you had things like I mean Invasion of Body Snatchers is is probably the best example of this because it's a film that is by turns understood to be a film about communism or a thing about the para a film about the paranoia of communism depending on who you talk to mm, yeah and i mean what about moving through the decades we get to the the main spike of of political filmmaking after that would probably be uh vietnam era kind of uh post post vietnam post watergate um, deeply suspicious of your own government type stuff like Parallax View you mentioned Three Days of the Condor um, mm -hmm. factual stuff like All the President's Men um, it felt like to me uh, was that the real first time that studios and things like that would actually be critical of their own governments I don't know if it was the first, first time because I feel like Hollywood for a very long time like the 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 producers and things like that, the money men were often very conservative and they would not necessarily be in, in favor of kind of advancing social projects. You know, I think there was, they, and particularly in the kind of the Red Scare era, they would be against anything that had the air of communism to it. So there was kind of very conflicted things about supporting the government or, or kind of criticizing it. And so they, they kind of got fire from both sides, but yeah, in the the sixties and seventies, that's when you start to see, following the Kennedy assassination, following this period of incredible chaos and terror from from you know political uh, numerous political assassinations, from riots, from protests, and things like that, uh, and then leading up to you know the Nixon administration and the fallout during and after that. Uh, that's when I think filmmakers seem to be emboldened to want to try and make films that commented either directly or indirectly on what was happening in their society. Mm. And they didn't really hold back, did they? No, I mean, if you look at something like yeah, uh, MASH is probably a big example of that. You know, these this as an example of a countercultural movie that is nominally about the Korean War because that's where it's set, but became was obviously about a comment on the Vietnam War, you know, and, you know, the chaos and the bloodshed of it all. And even though I don't feel that that film holds up particularly well as comedy, you know, certainly in terms of its gender politics, it's very suspect. It's a film that embraces the idea of tackling the horrors of war and the terrible mistakes that have been made over the previous decade of American involvement in Vietnam through a kind of a satirical comic lens. Mm. And I mean, it's that's an interesting touch point that 
a filmmaker or any any kind of cultural commentator in whatever kind of medium they work in being removed either by time or by uh, location from what they're talking about and the idea of something being too soon um mm-hmm. and so to talk about the Vietnam war through the lens of the Korean War, when do we start to see uh, the time being more compacted in terms of, I mean, what pops to mind here is like the the kind of the war on terror, I guess. We got films about the war on terror right in the midst of the war on terror. Yeah, I think, yeah, because with, with Vietnam, you have something like, you have the deer hunter and apocalypse now towards the end of the decade, which directly address it mm. once it's over. But when it was happening, you had things like, you know, Hearts and Minds, which was a documentary about Vietnam that was suppressed for quite a while, if I remember correctly. Mm. Um, it was a film that had been made, was deeply critical about it, and that, but then didn't get released until the war had ended. <laughs> and even though the war was already by that point deeply unpopular, it was the main reason why Lyndon Johnson didn't get re-elected in, in 68, why he dropped out of the election, even though he was the sitting president and he could have run again there is a general sense that you couldn't make movies about Vietnam directly unless it was like the Green Berets, the only pro-Vietnam War movie uh, for a very long time, maybe even still. I don't think there's many that are super positive about what happened in Vietnam, at least not from the American side. Maybe there's some North Vietnamese uh, (laughs) (laughs) Vietnam War movies that are very popular, are very positive about it. But yeah, I mean, with the War on Terror, because it was so nebulous and it wasn't necessarily confined to a single location and because it became deeply unpopular very quickly in comparison to vietnam because vietnam was kind of bubbling under the surface for quite a while before it became unpopular whereas if you're looking at something like the war on terror really starts in 2003 or, or you know the iraq war starts in 2003 uh, Afghanistan starts in 2002, but you have Fahrenheit 9-11 in 2004. Mm-hmm. So within three years, you have a documentary explicitly saying that this war was legal, that Bush stole the 2000 election and all of these things right in the midst of it. And it was hugely successful, you know, made over $100 million, the most successful documentary of all time. Uh, and that is def- that's definitely different to what you saw with Vietnam. Mm. He's got in on the act with this, hasn't he? He's released a, a film about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Michael Moore, um, sorry. Yeah. Um, he uh, has released a film about Donald Trump right in the run-up to the election. He released it like two weeks ago. Um, and I'm kind of curious to see where Michael Moore uh, stands on Donald Trump because uh, he seems like someone who will weigh it up in a kind of in a rational way. Yeah, I mean, the film itself doesn't sound that inspiring. It's more kind of a concert movie. Right. Because he went into kind of like these areas where Trump was popular and then just kind of performed in front of them on stage and did stuff like that. Uh, but I think I think it's interesting to just kind of uh, examining where his fortunes have gone since Fahrenheit 9-11 because he, for a long time, was a hugely influential figure he still is. I think he's probably inspired a lot of terrible documentaries mm-hmm. um, of people trying to replicate his stick and it not really working, uh, and also still being kind of journalistically dubious uh, as his methods tend to be. But you know, considering that this is something where he's released it video on demand, it's not getting a wide cinema release. Uh, it is very striking how different that is, and also it's also striking that in two thousand and four, Eminem released a song called "Mosh," which was designed to oust Bush. And this year, he also released a song designed about, uh, you know, attacking Trump. Uh, but no one seems to have paid any attention to that. Mm. So it's weird how there are these echoes of twelve years ago going on, but people are less inclined to pay attention to them. Mm. Um, we'll come back to Michael Moore. Um, and political filmmakers in a bit, but I want to just keep talking about uh, periods of of films where things were kind of became more political for reasons. Um, so in this case, kind of unknown to me. Like uh, JFK is a good example of uh, a kind of a film, very political film by a very political filmmaker Oliver Stone, uh, that came out when when we had the Gulf War just finished. I think, but it didn't mm-hmm. feel like in any way that was. 
uh, being used as an attack on the the, the uh, incumbent administration. Um, but it does kind of fit in with a early to mid nineties obsession with kind of conspiracy theories and mm-hmm. um, and kind of like Men in Black and things like that. Not the film Men in Black. I mean, oh, yeah, probably actually the film Men in Black. But I mean, as in, you know, there are sinister agents in the government uh, doing sinister things, covering things up, everything's an inside job, uh, tinfoil hats, etc., etc. Um, and that is where I can only really see JFK fitting in. Yeah, and I think part of that is it's a reaction to the end of the Cold War because mm. suddenly the overwhelming narrative of the past 40 years which is that there's this evil empire that we're lined up against and we're in this battle for the soul of humanity and it's between these two clearly delineated in the the in the narrative you know i don't think they were necessarily that clean cut but for the purposes of the politicians on either side the argument was that it was this clear cut west is good east is bad we have to destroy the Soviet Union for whatever ways possible. You know, it was politically expedient to make that narrative. And that narrative suddenly ends. That's when you get the um, Fukuyama um, book, you know, the end of his or, or the end of history. The idea that the end of that was the end was the final great ideological conflict of human history. And now we're in kind of a post-historical area, which is obviously bollocks. Um, but at the time seemed true. And I think when you lose that narrative, uh, something has to fill it. Mm-hmm. and without the target of the USSR for people to focus on America looked inward and people who had kind of been peddling conspiracy theories for a long time uh, got a lot more attention paid to them that's when you see the rise of someone like David Icke mm-hmm. <laughs> um, kind of becomes a, a notable figure uh, you have and, and also I think it's worth taking into account the fact that that was the early days of the internet. Mm-hmm. And so whilst you also had people connecting over, wanting to write to each other about theories about what's happening on the X-Files or sharing jokes on the Simpsons, much as it is today, people were suddenly able to share information slash misinformation about who killed Kennedy, about, you know, like you say, false flag operations and things like that, inside jobs, uh, governmental control and all this sort of stuff and that connectivity and that lack of a clear ideological enemy i think gave rise to conspiracy theory thinking in a big way uh, in a way that had previously been kind of confined to the fringes mm. and just to kind of touch on jfk for a second that film for someone like me growing up and like watching films in the 90s, that film seemed very kind of informative to me. That film uh, seemed to kind of bridge the gap between the, the kind of post or as it was then, kind of the, the 90s kind of Sundance boom and the old old Hollywood stuff. It seemed like a throwback to that. Um, and it seemed to be um, someone who was alive then, and it seemed like uh, very kind of out of time in terms of it being a kind of punchy political thriller and the point it was making. And I seemed quite entranced by that watching it growing up. It's, it is a kind of fairly dazzlingly well put together film. It's incredibly edited. It's it's you know really well put together. And then there's like oh shit, there's fucking one hundred and fifty thousand people in it as well. Everyone mm-hmm. uh, who's famous seems to be in it, but. Um, and I don't know whether this is just because, like, I'm a bit older now, but I watched it, like, two years ago, um, and I've kind of grown up a little bit, and I've kind of tried to educate myself around that whole, because I, I loved all the conspiracy theory stuff when I was, like, 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. um, which is when I saw JFK for the first time, and I've kind of tried to educate myself recently in a kind of perhaps more rational way, and um, that film's kind of crazy. Mm. There's there's yeah. some there's some fucking far out stuff in that, and it is. whilst the film is ultimately you know brilliantly made and, and kind of like almost expertly constructed, it's constructed out of what appears to be pure nonsense. Yeah, and I think it comes out of a very fevered point in American history, which obviously that the mystery surrounding the Kennedy assassination and the fact that for a very long time. I don't. This may even still be the case. It was widely assumed that there was a conspiracy to kill JFK. Uh, a lot of people believe that Oswald didn't 
act alone and people still see it as this thing that is very mysterious and misunderstood uh and it probably will always be that way unless someone's got a kind of a irrefutable deathbed confession <laughs> due to come um you know maybe ted cruz's dad will finally come clean but mm. you know there all all of these kind of things around it and it and it's such a perfect kind of nexus of an event that everyone saw because it was a political assassination that took place on television but about which still a huge amount is unknown mm. and so there's this wealth of information and no real understanding so that's why it's kind of the kind of uh, uh conspiracy theory in some way in american life and that's just compelling to delve into that so much has been written there are so many theories you know was it the mafia was it cuba was it lbj to kind of gain power all of these kind of possible things and there's just so much to to kind of build off of it and to explore uh, and any theory will just sound crazy because the thing that happened, which is that a president was shot in front of thousands of people and then millions who watched the footage at home, uh, you know, it would be insane. You know, you would think it, if it happened in fiction, it would be a crazy thing, but it was a thing that genuinely happened. Mm. And it, it's, I've always said, and, you know, this sentiment's probably been echoed um elsewhere and I kind of say the same thing to people who kind of bang on about you know 9-11 being an inside job and you know, you know Princess Diana and stuff like that you always say well when something scarcely believable happens it's no surprise that people don't believe it mm, do you yeah. know what I mean because but the thing is if you if you look at what happens like you know like we've got we had dinosaurs and skateboards it's <laughs> we live in a crazy world anything's possible and you know if you think about the the you know, billions of coincidences that occur every second to fuel life, um, mm. then this stuff is not actually that unbelievable. And yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's kind of weird to now look at JFK as basically a kind of incredibly well-made piece of agitprop rather mm. than, a you know, something that is kind of uh, culturally incredibly important because I don't think it is. Yeah, I kind of feel that that is true to an extent of a lot of the stuff that oliver stone did in the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. when he was america's kind of foremost political filmmaker in that you know there were lots of people making political movies you had something like john sales who made a lot of movies that were kind of commenting on american society on various points of american history but they weren't movies that were being seen by huge audiences mm. whereas platoon and born on the 4th of july and jfk and even something like nixon which was only a minor hit they were all they all like were seen by a lot of people and made a lot of money and got nominated for like best picture and oscars and things like that mm. it's interesting you should mention john sales um because he falls into a category with with a few other filmmakers where i wonder where someone is a where does the line starts to blur between someone who's a political filmmaker and someone whose films feature social commentary. Mm. Is there a line? Is that, is that just semantics? I think it comes down to how well they function within the studio system, I think. Because mm -hmm. I think if you look at someone like a George Clooney, who's kind of a good example of this now, he's someone who makes movies that are have a kind of a social conscious that comment on things but they do so in a way that is very accessible and not very challenging as good as a film like good night and good luck is it's not a movie that's really going to kind of challenge people too much because it's essentially saying hey demagoguery is really bad we shouldn't let people do it <laughs> we shouldn't allow people to kind of hijack the political process for their own enrichment or their own kind of attempt to accrue power through fear and intimidation Mm -hmm. uh, so actually maybe it's a lesson that more people should pay attention to but it's not necessarily really that challenging to established structures or established political norms whereas i feel like stuff like if someone like a john sales is making movies that have kind of an aggressively left-wing or an aggressively anti-authoritarian bent to them then and they can only make their movies by self-financing on a very small level then that is probably more of a sign that they're a, a political filmmaker and, and that's not to 
um, doubt like George Clooney's sincerity in the movies that he makes, or as some to go back historically, someone like a Stanley Kramer who made things like Inherit the Wind and um, The Defiant Ones, and uh, I guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which were movies about real kind of social ills and trying to address things and to, and to try and kind of move the needle culturally about what was acceptable. But they are still at the same time not risking much by making them. Mm. But then when we talk about someone like uh, Michael Moore, mm-hmm. um, someone like Oliver Stone, whose kind of uh, colours are nailed pretty firmly to the mast before they yeah. go into their films, you would say that they were, you know, out-and-out political filmmakers. Someone like Ken Loach mm-hmm. um, as well. Um, you you know where he's coming from. I, I spoke kind of last week or two weeks ago about I, Daniel Blake. Um, and I think that sometimes his films are quite kind of, that can be a bit hampered by that. There's a bit in I, Daniel Blake where uh, a man walks along and, and explicitly starts kind of screaming that everything's is the Tories' fault, um, mm-hmm. which is, um, yeah, I mean, that's, you, you know, that's fine. You can put that in there. Um but, you know, it's not like we were in any doubt where he stood on, on that issue uh, mm. to start with. Um, um, so, yeah, who else can we think of that is a kind of like actively political filmmaker? Uh, I think, well, we're talking about a lot of left-wing people. I think someone like Dinesh D'Souza on the right is probably a big example of this. For people who don't know, Dinesh D'Souza is an uh, an Indian a filmmaker initially who then came over to America and became a naturalized American citizen and uh, is kind of a big commentator on the right uh, and is also massively racist um, at least based on his movies if you look at the films he did like Obama's America uh, 2016 which was a rancid bit of, bit of agitprop designed to try and prevent uh, Obama's re-election by arguing that he was essentially going to turn control of the, comp- the country over to black Americans and things like that or it was just going to be all about entitlements and things like that uh, he is very much a political filmmaker because he's only advancing an ideology he's not interested in facts mm-hmm. uh, he is very much the Ameri- the right wing Michael Moore in that regard, in that he's less tethered to, but he's less tethered to reality than Michael Moore is. Um, how do you think someone like, uh, and this is quite an interesting person to talk about, someone like Clint Eastwood mm-hmm. uh, fits into this mold because he is uh, famously a Republican, but with the exception of a few of his eighties films, his films don't particularly seem to fit into a kind of like rabid. Um, right-wing stance. Uh, I mean, some a lot of his films have got very kind of uh, dubious approaches to violence, perhaps. Um, and, you know, characters like Dirty Harry could be seen as um, fascists, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he's, he's, he's a more complicated person than that and a fair, more, more interesting filmmaker than, than, than his political beliefs seem to suggest. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that his work, there is a clear delineation between his personal politics and the movies that he's making, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is one of the reasons why the uproar around American Sniper was fascinating to observe, because it seems that because people knew that he was a Republican, that they assumed the film itself was kind of rabidly right-wing in a way that I don't necessarily feel that it was. Mm. Uh you and I have said in the past that it's not a good film, but it's also not kind of anti-Islamic or anything like that. It's very much just about telling that particular story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's kind of a, a fairly straightforward war movie, but because of the context in which it was made, it kind of has that tinge to it. But then if you compare it to something like Sully, which came out this year, you would think Sully is about uh, this man who did this amazing thing, uh, you know, he saved all these people's lives and it was an incredibly heroic thing that he did. You would think it's going to be this kind of story about kind of rugged individualism that you would expect someone like Clint Eastwood to make. But it ends up being this kind of very warm, humanistic movie. Uh, and also, like, you would think because he's a kind of Republican, it's going to be about how regulations are bad or how government can't be trusted and things like that. And the film initially sets out its stock as being, oh, he's being investigated by the kind of the, the FAA or, or whoever's involved in 
um in kind of investigating things like this but by the end of the film it's more a case of like it's not that they are bad or they're trying to portray him as being at fault is the fact that they're doing their job and they have to investigate Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that film does give the lie to the idea that someone can be incredibly political uh, and that that in some way has to infuse their work it is possible for people to have kind of crazy beliefs not not crazy it's kind of obviously pejorative in my terms but they can have extreme and deeply felt beliefs Mm -hmm. that do not necessarily have to bleed over into their work yeah and if you think about perhaps the preoccupation of the american conservative right with you know gun control and things like that being and uh, capital punishment being kind of hot topics you would not think that someone who is staunchly republican would make a film like unforgiven yeah which is very much kind of uh, a meditation on violence and, you know, revenge and, you know, how ultimately those things are very hollow. Or that same filmmaker 16 years later, having become older and considerably more conservative, making Gran Torino, which Mm -hmm. is another movie about violence ultimately being a hollow thing and which climaxes with the idea of sacrifice uh, and kind of uh, non-violence being nobler than what you would expect from a movie that initially kind of seemed to be sold as the idea of being like an extra dirty Harry movie. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And then the same filmmaker makes Jersey Boys, which is unforgivable (laughs) on any political spectrum. Um, yeah. Yeah, Both sides can be united in condemning Jersey Boys. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah um, what about political films that kind of take a kind of maybe an absurdist uh, look at politics um, I'm thinking of stuff like uh, Doctor Strangelove perhaps mm-hmm. or uh, Being There yeah or uh, yeah, um... a, a film I haven't seen which everyone seems to talk about being a, a hot topic now is Idiocracy yes yeah would that, would that fit into that mould uh, I think that definitely would. Uh, it's less kind of pointedly political than the others, but it definitely has a point of view in that it's, uh, you know, kind of arguing about what will happen to society if people just kind of keep getting dumber and the idea of society, mainly through the fact that, you know, Terry Crews's character as President Comancho, a former porn star who becomes President of the United States, uh, and kind of is just like aggressively macho and ridiculous. Um, seems to be more plausible now than in 2006 or <laughs> whenever it came out. Uh, an interesting one in terms of kind of an absurdist movie was one that I watched just last night, which I didn't realize was a political movie until I started watching it. Um, have you ever heard of the movie The World's Greatest Sinner? Uh, no, I don't think I have. It, it's a movie from uh i want to say 1962 written and directed by timothy carey who uh it was a character actor very odd looking gentleman who is most famous for being in the killing and paths of glory uh he was one of three he's one of the three soldiers killed in paths of glory and he was fired from that film because stanley kubrick hated him uh and it's a room style passion project but good about a man who's like an insurance salesman who's very uh, unhappy with his life who decides that he's going to form he's going to run in run for uh, get into kind of political life and then as he gets into politics he decides he's going to form his own religion based around the idea that every man is a, is his own personal god mm-hmm. and it is uh and dark and surreal and absurdist meditation on like demagoguery and on the points in American society at which capitalism and religion and politics meet, which weirdly actually is the subject of a speech in The Magnificent Seven, to go back to that. Uh, and it is it is a film that feels less like it was directed than that it escaped from some vault somewhere. It's very strange. It's a weird passion project um, with music by Frank Zappa, of all people. And uh, it's it's like a crazy... Uh, deep dive into the American political psyche 
uh, that uh, I didn't realize was going to be that when I started watching it, but it certainly fits into the category of kind of a, a an absurdist look at at politics. Mm. Could could all of these films be broadly termed as satire, or is there is there a difference? Yeah, I would say they're all they're all definitely in the realm of, realm of satire. You could also say that about something like In the Loop and mm-hmm. uh, The Thick of It. It's uh, it's television compatriot uh, uh, and its sequel Veep. They are all satires of politics and the political mindset and the way in which business is done. Uh, but um, I'd guess they would be more uh, absurd just in the cases that they go further. They don't have the veneer of reality that something like the thick of it uh, and in the loop and veep have where they kind of hew to certain ideas of what the world is like and they don't really push that far they're just very very funny recreations of things that genuinely happen and mm. um, what about something like duck soup does that fit into that as a very early contender uh, i would i would say it it kind of is but it's less pointed mm. like they're they're more interested in the jokes than the point Right, <laughs> they're not. They're not necessarily. It, it's not like if you compare that to something like The Great Dictator, mm-hmm. which is a film that has a very clear message that it wants to send an anti-fascist message, a kind of aggressively left-wing, left-wing message that is not really present in Duck Soup. Duck Soup is just a kind of a crazy collection of gags that happen to take place in a political context. Mm. And with things like In the Loop, Veep, uh, the thick of it. Um, also, um, kind of go back a little bit further, something like Wag of the Dog. Um, mm-hmm. This has been a kind of a modern obsession with uh, a very modern kind of fac- facet of, of politics, which is the kind of the spin uh, and, and the, that, that whole people behind the man, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is uh, kind of a rich theme of, of kind of, of comedy, isn't it? Um, and which, which Veep and the thick of it, I have got a lot of mileage out of, which I didn't think they would. Yeah, I mean, particularly, like, I just happened to rewatch the first two series of the thick of it recently because there's only six episodes, so it's very easy to to watch all of those first two series. But things like the first episode where they say they want to. They're going to make an announcement of a, a special project that they've come up with, and then they get told that on the way there that they have to not announce the project because they haven't got permission, and so they just spend the entire car journey trying to think of an incredible a new project that's incredibly popular that would be instantly applicable and would cost nothing, uh, and things like Ollie Reader saying. Oh, good, because I've got a whole fucking stack of them on my <laughs> desk that we could just go through. Uh, and it, it really is the kind of like amazing to see how quickly that show got to the nub of a um of of its kind of comic engine, which is these are the people who maybe at some point in their life had wanted to change the world and to do great things and maybe would still do it if they had the chance, but are so kind of uh, the cynicism of the system is so ingrained in them that they can't actually do anything and it becomes more about massaging the message and to try and think of ways of conv- of convincing people that they're not constantly fucking everything up mm. isn't one of the ideas they come up with in their car dog asbos yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, is it this second season or is when Rebecca Front's character is the minister yeah. and her notes from the meeting where she writes vigilant bat people <laughs> is they take a photo from across the Downing street uh, and, and zoomed in vigilant bat people. Um, <laughs> just quickly to dwell on the thick of it. Um, do you have a favorite insult from the thick of it? Cause um, I use one on a kind of probably weekly basis in that I will often call my workmates um, out as being as much use as a marzipan dildo, which <laughs> is an incredible bit of, uh, of kind of insultory. Uh, it's too long to go into now, and I don't know if I could remember it all, but I do like from, I think it's from one of the kind of the specials they did in between the second and third series, where Jamie, the smaller, angrier version of Malcolm Tucker, talks about, wanting to shove an iPod shuffle up someone's cock 
and then <laughs> hit it on shuffle with their, by punching them in the balls or something like that. And it's just this very long and elaborate and terrifying, not really metaphor, just kind of a description of a horrible thing he wants to inflict on someone's body. Uh, that's one of my favorite, just because uh, it's just an incredible thing to, to kind of watch and to just imagine the actors having to sit there and take it and not burst out laughing or cry because mm. there's only really two reactions to someone doing that. Um, I do enjoy also from In the Loop just for pure, pure vulgarity when an American calls Malcolm Tucker out on swearing and he just shouts, kiss my sweaty balls like you fat fuck. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of runs off right in front of the White House. It's just a beautiful, beautiful moment from, um, from Peter Capaldi. What about, um, just to kind of wrap this up, um, what about political films that aren't actually about politics? Um, can you think of any examples? The one that jumps to mind for me is something like Election, uh, mm-hmm. a film that features no actual politicians, uh, that features politicking, but is about a high school election, but is beyond that deeply about politics. Mm. Yeah, I think Election's probably best example of that there is definitely just just in its uh and that's a that's one that um i really want to rewatch because i'm not sure how i would feel about it now because i remember watching it when i was younger and assuming that tracy flick was the villain right and i'm not so sure if she is now i kind of wonder if matthew broderick would actually be just because he's like an adult who's trying to destroy a teenage girl's life mm. Uh, I can't quite remember why exactly he would be the one. I mean, I know what often in Alexander Payne's films that no one's really meant to have any sympathy. Um, you identify with the characters because you spend time with them. Mm-hmm. But uh, that seems like one where I would find it very hard now in the in the kind of a post Parks and Rec, post Leslie Nope world. Uh, I would find it very hard not to kind of be a little bit on Tracy Flick's side. Um, I guess Parks and Rec kind of would be. I mean, it gets more political when Leslie is running for office. But for the most part, it's more about just people trying to do their job and they happen to work for a government department. Uh, Mm. And most of it is just kind of advancing a political worldview or vision of government as being driven by good people who want to do the best they can, which isn't really... which doesn't really kind of get into kind of like what you think of as politics, like the horse trading and things like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. Just quickly, uh, before we go, um, favourite movie president? I'll accept a TV president if you want to go for the obvious. Yeah, I don't I don't want to go for the obvious, which obviously would be Martin Sheen in The West Wing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of feel I have to. He's really just super perfect, but also deeply kind of troubled and complicated and a liar <laughs> on a kind of a major scale, but just so damn kind of compelling and articulate and righteous. It's kind of hard not to love Jeb Bart a little bit. Mm. I'm going to go for, and this is, this is going to be unusual because I haven't actually seen the film in question, but um, Mars Attacks. The president is played by Jack Nicholson. And I haven't seen the film. I don't know what kind of president he is in the film. Uh, And I don't care because my point is, could you imagine if Jack Nicholson was president and (laughs) aliens turned up and he was just like, ah, come on, guys. (laughs) Let's just bang. You know what I mean? (laughs) He would just sort that out, no problem. Let's go to a Lakers game together. We'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, it'd be good. He's just got some dark glasses on. Um, <laughs> you know, he's yeah, he's just he's just Jack because uh, he would there would be no trouble with any other planets if Jack was president. And I don't actually think there'd be a lot of work done in politics. There'd be a lot of like hitting golf balls off the roof of the White House into the street, possibly. <laughs> but yeah, none of that business. I think uh, someone like Bill Pullman from Independence Day. He's got he's dashing. Uh, he's a war hero. He's single. He's available. He's available by the end of that film. <laughs> Spoiler alert: uh, He can fly a plane. You know, he's got it going on. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty good. Um, Lincoln in the movie Lincoln. He's got gravitas. I mean, it's a bit far fetched. Yeah, yeah. But he's, he's, he seems he seems pretty good. He seems to have a handle on things. Yeah, Lincoln from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where <laughs> when trying to sneak all these historical figures into. Uh, Bill's uh, Ted's mum's house she makes them all do chores and they end up with the 
one of the most amazing scenes in cinema with Genghis Khan drinking out of a toilet. Um, <laughs> but he tries to kind of uh, pass them off as his friends. So he's saying, like, Billy the Kid is Herbert the Kid, Bob Genghis Khan. And then when Abraham Lincoln did, he's just like, it's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, I, I always like at the end of their presentation when he gets something, he says, four score and seven minutes ago. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't care how amazing your presentation was. No one's on board for you after 87 minutes. Everyone wants to go home. No one likes a hour and a half long assembly. Yeah, yeah. But Sandy must football rules, um, et cetera, et cetera. Cool, man. Let's uh, let's wrap up this politics nonsense and do some recommendations. What you got this week? I'm going to recommend a movie that uh, I got to see um, because I got a screener sent to me because it's that time of year. It's the time of year when I get to vote on awards so I don't have to leave my house to see movies, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a movie called I Am Not Your Negro, which is a documentary about the writer James Baldwin, who uh, is uh, probably most famous work would be The Fire Next Time, which is a kind of a book-length essay about race in America in 1963. The film is based on a kind of an unfinished manuscript he had. He had the idea for writing a book about the civil rights movement through the prism of his relationships with Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Medgar Evers, and Malcolm X, and basically going from sort of 90, the, the Montgomery book, uh, bus boycott through to um, King's assassin, uh, yeah, to King's assassination in 1968, and uh, the film is both about the civil rights era because obviously Baldwin wrote about what was happening in America at that time, and he knew and argued with some of the key figures. Uh, and it's also about him as this kind of incredibly fascinating intellectual, this man who was probably one of the most captivating speakers ever. There's lots of wonderful interviews, uh, uh, footage of him being interviewed and giving speeches about the uh, the black experience in 63 and its relationship to now, like something like 13th or OJ Made in America. You know, it's been a great year for movies about race in America, documentaries in particular, and they it, it, it ties the struggle of that period to things like the Black Lives Matter movement now and the various uh, horrible police killings that have gone on over the last couple of years or all that have been going on for the last century or so that have only really people have only really been um bring uh, paying attention to in the last few years unfortunately uh, and it's also uh, may, notable because it has uh, extracts from the unfinished manuscript read by Samuel L Jackson as in as in character essentially as James Baldwin and the film is is worth watching for a number of reasons it's it's kind of wonderfully assembled and just kind of fascinating intellectually but his performance as the narrator is one of i think genuinely one of his best it just is so deeply felt and really powerful to to hear um i think the movie is coming out later this year assumingly for kind of oscar attention uh and it is absolutely worth seeking out uh, any way that you can Mm, cool um i'm gonna pick uh, a political film and when we i'm picking this one because when we sat down to think about films we talk about i kind of limited us to really only english language films because there's you know we'd be here all fucking night if we were kind of talking about the world's politics um, cause no one's got time for that. So I'm going to pick a film that is uh, highly political from a few years ago, a documentary called five broken cameras, um, which is an amazing film by a guy called, uh, Ahmad Banat, who was, uh, is a Palestinian man, uh, living, uh, right on the, the kind of the border of West bank, uh, where, you know, the property that he lives in and, you know, the area he lives in is being slowly kind of eaten away by kind of Israeli incursion. Um, and the film is, kind of structured about around five cameras that he has shot footage documenting his life and the life of his community um, during, you know, a period, I think it's about 10 years, I think. And uh, he's edited together and his co-director is a guy called Guy Davidi who came on board and took his footage and kind of like structured it um, to talk about how he picks a camera and he shoots stuff with it and then there's a reason why that camera breaks and then... They move on to the next camera and it's a different kind of feel, different kind of segment of the narrative. And it is a very heartbreaking film. Uh, it's kind of deeply affecting. 
um, in kind of depicting in quite a frank, but yet somehow not extraordinarily angry way. Um, that that conflict is just just kind of engulfing that region. Um, it is uh, kind of very very kind of heart rending in times because you got to get to know characters over a period of time. And they're not characters; they're real people. Um, and you know, not all of them make it, and it's you know pretty hard to watch in places. But in terms of a very powerfully political film done in a very kind of calm and uh, kind of kind of stand I don't mean standoffish wrong way kind of like a, a detached way but not personally a detached way and it's just, it is just filmed there's uh, not a lot of uh, what we call agitprop to it um, it's just remarkable and it's on most Netflixes I think so you can kind of see it, it kind of got nominated for best documentary I think a few years ago it didn't win but um, it should have done because it was fucking amazing did you see that one, Ed? I did, yeah. Um, that's an incredible work of documentary filmmaking. And like, yeah, like I say, it's heartbreaking to uh, see something like that happen so close. You know, there's there's no um, there's no barrier separating documentary and filmmaker from subject. It's all right there. And uh, it's it's incredibly powerful. Mm, yes, it is. Uh, seek it out. Okay, everyone, that is it. Uh, on the subject of politics and film thanks as always for listening if you've enjoyed the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher or play fm and if you really enjoyed the show leave us a little review why not you can find us on twitter at srs underscore podcast and on facebook as well we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me 